Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Jeremy Stanley. Jeremy is the co-founder and CTO of Anomalo, and he's the former VP of data science at Instacart. And he's a machine learning and AI expert. At least I hope he is, because we're going to dive into a lot of those things today. Jeremy, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you, Oren. I'm, I'm incredibly excited to be here. And yeah, I appreciate you caveating that level of expertise. It's a huge <laughs> I've, I've done a lot of work with data, a lot of work with machine learning, things that might border on AI, and I have lots of opinions I'm happy to share. So excited to get into this conversation. All right. Awesome. Now, I recently read a piece I really liked. It was called Deep Learning is Hitting a Wall by Gary Marcus, who's a friend of mine. Gary, he kind of noted that GPT-3 was very error prone. He thinks AI kind of in some ways misinterprets radiology scans by a long shot, how driverless cars still have trouble recognizing nuances and stop signs. And he really argues that AI is just not sophisticated enough to do reasoning well. And most companies are focused on scaling AI rather than improving its quality. Where do you think he's right? And where do you think he kind of misses the mark? I like the article. I would generally say I disagree with it. Great. Okay, let's dive in. Underneath the hood, deep learning is often just about predicting what's going to happen. And so it's incredibly powerful when you have massive data sets and you are explicitly interested in predicting what's going to happen next or what would humans do in a situation and you've recorded massive amounts of data around that. And it's funny I agree with him that there are fundamental limits of what you can do when all you're working with is data incidentally collected about human behavior and an algorithm that's trying to predict what would a human do in this circumstance. You're going to be limited by the amount of data that you can collect and by whatever biases, cognitive biases, social biases, whatever biases there are in the humans that are taking the Maybe let's dive into first, like maybe we would dive into like the radiology scan thing. I think clearly 10 years ago, everyone was predicting this would be a terrible field of study. Everyone was telling every medical student, you shouldn't go into radiology. And at least according to this article and according, it seems like there hasn't been any radiologist who's been replaced yet. And it's still a very, very good job. It still pays extremely well. Maybe they're aided with some machines, but it doesn't seem like any of them are earning less income than they were earning before. So why did we miss the mark on that prediction? And then would you still make that prediction in the next five years? Like, don't go into radiology? Because that seems like one of the things that AI should be able to do a good job of. Well, I think there's a few problems there. So one is you have to make a distinction between the scientific research, the capabilities of deep learning as a technology, and the actual innovation and application of it. There's always a huge gap there, and it's very uncertain, and technologies can exist that are incredibly powerful for decades before they have real meaningful disruptive impacts. Now, why might that be? The example that he uses in his article is that, well, the deep learning model doesn't have the written context around the radiology report. It doesn't have the patient's historical context in the written data. Now, that's because it wasn't fed to the deep learning model and the deep learning model wasn't trained on it, probably because electronic medical records are so difficult to work with. You can get a whole bunch of images of radiology scans and collect those at some scale and build deep learning models on them. 
what they're saying is like the scan is not enough to determine things. You need to understand the entire patient history before you actually start reading the scan or something. Well, what you're trying to do is you're trying to compare an entire system built up around human radiologists and just taking a deep learning model and swapping it in for the human radiologist. And that's, of course, kind of ridiculous. That entire system of what data is collected, how is it collected, how is it presented, what are the options that you can take with that data? We're all built around human radiologists. And so it's a very, very high bar. Where deep learning can be immediately swapped in is in in activities where a human just simply can't do it. There aren't enough humans out there to translate all of the documents in the world. And so as soon as machine translation gets good enough, it's a very easy swap and replace. For deep learning to be really effective in radiology, the initial place for it to be effective is as a complement to humans. The other thing that I dislike the article is it kind of nitpicks on, well, this algorithm failed in this circumstance. Humans fail all of the time. There are ridiculous cognitive biases that humans have that we're constantly failing of, anchoring all of these base rate biases persistent everywhere. And so, of course, there are going to be situations where deep learning models aren't successful, where machine learning and AI aren't successful. And you need to build safeguards around those in the same ways that you would build safeguards around humans being unsuccessful. There's different thresholds. If we're just trying to decide whether a photo has cats or dogs or something like that, like it doesn't have to be as good as humans, maybe. So maybe the threshold is much lower. If we're doing a self-driving car, then the threshold probably has to be at least as good as a human before we can let the machine drive the car. And I assume if we're like outsourcing completely to radiology, then it has to be at least as good as a human. If it's just a human assist thing, then it could be less good as a human and just maybe give the human a little bit more help. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's an underlying question about an application for machine learning, which is as the model gets better on one scale, what is the kind of economic return or potential of the model and its usefulness? And in a lot of these situations, the kind of economic return of the potential of the model is zero for a long time. And then suddenly it goes up sharply. If I'm doing translation and I get translation that just doesn't make any sense, it's worthless to me. But as soon as it is better than me trying to puzzle it out using a dictionary, (laughs) my limited understanding of the language, then all of a sudden it has utility. And then as soon as it's better than your average human translator, it has mass utility. And so anytime you're looking at a curve that's like that, it's very difficult to make predictions. With radiology, we could be in the last 1% of that space where it's still not useful, but then all of a sudden it becomes dramatically. I don't know if you know that much about radiology, but like if you were advising a new medical student, would you be advising him like we were 10 years ago to still not go into radiology, to pick something that it's likely that machines are less likely to replace surgery or some other type of thing or something where you have to talk to the patient or something like that? You shouldn't ask George Hinton that question. You shouldn't ask me either. And the reason is it's not the limit of what deep learning can do. It's a limit of how much data is available to train deep learning models on actual clinical situations that matter. And I'm almost certain that's what's holding this back. And when you're doing like the data, a lot of times when we're getting this data, we're making some sort of BD partnership. Let's say in this case, you're making a BD partnership with like a hospital system. And then often the forward-looking hospitals, like say the Sloan Ketterings of the world, They are really focused, Sloan Kettering is really focused on the corner case things. Like the reason you go to Sloan Kettering is usually because they're like the best in the world at this specific kind of like rare kind of case. 
you're rarely getting the data from like the general hospital type of where they're just working with like the average case. So could be these corner cases also skewing the data? Well, 100%. It's not just corner case versus average cases. I think that's a part of it. If your data is significantly biased, that would cause problems. I think it's more just volume and consistency. Yeah, just not a lot of data. You had every radiology scan ever done in the last 30 years, coupled with the patient medical record in just plain natural text. And then the 10-year follow-up outcome of what happened with that patient. We have that data in the VA. We have that data in the Medicare and CMS system. It shouldn't be the government's imperative to get that data out there in a privacy safe way that I'm sure they can obfuscate all the patient information so that, but shouldn't they get that data out there so that researchers can't, couldn't we do a lot with that data? The data is there. It exists. Why can't researchers get access to that today? That's a whole nother challenge and problem for us to talk through. And I think there's a bunch of issues. There's how do you collect that data and in privacy-preserving ways? I mean, that's mostly a solved problem. Like, we could figure that out. Like, we have smart people. We could figure that out. The data is there. We can get inside privacy-safe ways. Is it just like some sort of lobby or some sort of who's blocking this? Because we could be literally saving like millions of lives immediately if we could get access to this data. I would disagree that it's solved. I think there are technologies that can help. There's differential privacy, there's methods, but a lot of these things end up adding a lot more complexity. They may erode the quality of the data that is used. So they come with downsides. They still often rely upon central authority to be executing this, to be coordinating it. And so you have to have trust in that central authority. And so all of the same issues that we have with security and fraud risk We've been doing credit scoring for a long time, and then we have breaches from Equifax. (laughs) Obviously, like even the Office of Personnel Management got breached. So even the organization and the government to keep all the security clearances, right, got breached itself. Even the NSA itself has gotten breached. That's right. And medical records have even potentially bigger consequences than a lot of the other data that's been breached. And so I think there is just concern about the aggregation of that data and the distribution of that data. Anyone even like working on like the VA has this amazing data. It's really long. It's a longitudinal study over millions and millions of Americans. I'm not just talking about, I'm just using them as an example. We've got great, great data out there. Why isn't no one really pushing this to move it forward? Like, why isn't the public demanding this? Like we could really, if we work on it, we could really make society better. It's interesting. If we went back 15 years ago at the beginning of the internet, and we were all really struggling with search, and you couldn't find anything on the internet, it was this wonderful potential resource, but you can't find anything. You could have made the argument, well, why can't the government prioritize solving search? Why can't that happen? Well, I do think that's a different argument. All we're doing here is asking government to like release data and make it available in a privacy-safe way to make that data available. And it doesn't have to be government. It could be the private sector. It could be a big hospital system could be Kaiser. It could be the NHS in the UK. You know this is going to happen in China. You know this is going to happen in other places, and their lives are going to get better much, much faster if we don't figure it out ourselves. The argument I was going to make from that, Oren, is that there's not a lot of economic incentives within healthcare systems and healthcare infrastructure to invest significantly in data and technology. Well, of course, their economic incentive is to make sure that people are sicker. They don't have a long-term incentive to make sure that people are less sick, to make sure that things are less costly. That's society's incentive. 
is to go do that. We want people to live longer. We want people to be much, much healthier. The hospital system, the Medicare system establishment is their goal is to make people live a really long time, but make them live unhealthily those times. That's right. That is the economic incentive of the system as a whole. So in a world like that, even if there are actors and interests in being able to aggregate and share this data in privacy protecting ways, I wouldn't be surprised if the main thing limiting it is the quality of the data systems and the quality of the folks involved in those data systems in a lot of these places where the data actually resides. Interesting. Another great article, Sam Altman wrote this article called Moore's Law for Everything, where he kind of argues that we're just years away from computers being able to think and actually do things like give medical advice. In some ways, we got like Gary Marcus on one side and Sam Altman on the other side. Where do you fall on that continuum? I think that there will be things that happen in the next five to 10 years that will appear to us as magical today that are based upon the types of algorithms that are in play today. Even you look at this deep learning hitting a wall, within weeks, there was Dolly 2, there was the Google Palm Pathways language model. The ability to, if you look at the amount of data that is going into these models, it's still relatively limited. So for example, they're just working on natural language or just working on static images. Wait until they can process all video as well. And I think the amount of progress that's being made today is still incredibly high. I don't think that deep learning has hit a wall. Now, I don't think that that means we're very close to AGI. So I tend to disagree with Sam Altman. I think AGI is further away. And I agree with some of the critiques that are made in the hitting the wall article. Your feeling is like these things are kind of like step functions and they're very hard to know when the step is going to happen rather than kind of like a predictable 1% improvement or some sort of Moore's law predictability? Well, no, I think there's an element of that. I think the bigger piece is that we are actually missing substantive technology and capabilities that would enable us to get to AGI. In particular, what we've gotten really, really good at is predicting what's going to happen next. In a sentence, how is the sentence going to be completed? In a video, the front of a Tesla, where is that object going to be in 10 seconds? And that's incredibly powerful, but it's not enough to solve AGI, where you're trying to reason about the world in situations you haven't seen before. Instead of making predictions, you're trying to make optimal decisions in a world. I think that the best analogy I can give you and what I think is missing is if we look at chess and we look at AlphaGo and then AlphaZero. AlphaGo was all about predicting what the best humans would do in a given circumstance and then combining that with algorithms to search. What really blew my mind with AlphaZero is it evolved chess playing from nothingness, from no human observed data at all. And just in a simulation environment, having deep learning trained algorithms play one another and then learn from the outcomes of those games, they were able to create a system that could beat the AlphaGo system trained on humans. And then ultimately now the very best chess players in the world are learning fundamentally new things about the game from AlphaZero. So in that world, what's critical is that chess can be simulated and you can combine the incredible power of prediction from deep learning with search and optimization in a simulation environment and evolve a system that can be amazing and can exhibit general intelligence in that system. So what the author of the Hitting a Wall article is saying is, well, we're missing this kind of like symbolic piece. We need to go in and we need to write symbolic rules on top of deep learning. And that's going to give us this kind of generalization and problem solving skill 
that we're missing. I think that is misplaced. And that's actually raising humans on too high of a pedestal. We can't write those rules. It's almost fundamentally impossible for us to architect logic that's going to create intelligence. By definition, as intelligent beings, we're only ever going to be able to do something slightly less than what we are. And so I think what we can do is evolve them. Now, to evolve general intelligence, I think you need to think about, well, how did we get here? We got here through 4 billion years of evolution with incredible computational fidelity in this real world. Now, maybe we don't need that. Maybe we don't need to simulate something that's as realistic as our real world and run the simulation for 4 billion years using all of the computational resources that exist on Earth in order to create general intelligence. If you think about like chess and what was done in AlphaZero, it's a pretty small constrained universe versus the universe in which we actually operate in. And so our intelligence ought to be able to do things better than just blind luck and evolution did, but I don't know how much better. And so I think that's what's ultimately missing. Where do you fall kind of like, there's this kind of like data versus, let's say algos or data versus deep learning. In some cases, like if you think of like the translation stuff, okay, well, we have so much data available of all these different documents that were translated into other documents and stuff like that. Maybe like, is that the most important thing? Like maybe that plus the simplest algorithm beats, in your case, the alpha zero, which maybe didn't have much data. Where do you think things fall on that continuum? And how is that changing over time? It wasn't that alpha zero didn't have data. Alpha zero was able to simulate data in a perfect fidelity environment. Alpha zero had an infinite amount of data. Because chess is somewhat of a constrained game where it can start to play on itself and stuff. That's exactly right. Another interesting example of data is Tesla. I actually am very bullish on Tesla being able to do self-driving. If anyone is going to be able to do it, it will likely be Tesla. Why? Because Tesla has now hundreds of thousands of vehicles fully instrumented in the exact same way that they would be self-driving, recording everything that humans are doing in the world. Exact same, no other technology company has that asset. That is absolutely critical. They'll be able to use that to bootstrap a system that they can then either they'll be able to bootstrap simulation systems or systems that can start to do this in the real world. So I think data is incredibly important. I think it's the base rate for machine learning. It's the foundation. If you do not have enough data, you cannot solve the problem. Now, I think that we're getting to the point where we are starting to use all of the data. Some of these language models are using every scrap of digitally available content that has been translated from any language to any other language, and then training one massive model that can translate between all possible languages with all of that data. That's where we hit a wall with data. There is no more. Now algorithms can be incredibly important for a couple of reasons. One is just computational efficiency. A lot of these deep learning models, you can get every order of magnitude longer you train them they will get another percent better. And so if you can change the algorithm to remove some fundamental inefficiency in that, then all of a sudden now you don't have to wait 100 days, you can do it in one day. And now your size increase and your ability to learn and iterate increase. And so you can make much more rapid changes in the system. Then there are fundamental improvements in the algorithm itself. Before we had a convolutional neural networks, this concept of being able to take a loop that you would use to look at an image and think about scanning that over the image and having that loop do some computation over the image that now you can generalize and, and make some predictions about. That idea of the convolution happening there was a fundamental new innovation 
without which we would not be able to process images and we would not have any of the deep learning innovation that we've had on top of images. So there are these fundamental ideas. I'm positive that we have not found all the fundamental ideas for how to make models better. And so those will allow us to process new types of input, or process them more efficiently, reduce false positives and false negatives, not overfit data, generalize better to new observations. There's all sorts of benefits that come from those innovations in the algorithms. You recently wrote a piece basically saying we should stop using the word data store and really start maybe referring to it more as a data factory. Explain that. And I think intuitively that makes sense to me. Data store does seem like kind of an outdated analogy. The term I use is data warehouse. Data warehouse. Yeah, good point. Common nomenclature used by a snowflake or And I think you can kind of tell a historical story here of if you go back 10 or 15 years, you really only had the operational databases within a business. And you didn't have a centralized place where you could land and manipulate data. We went from that to, oh, Hadoop, let's just store everything in a file system. And then we can do really complicated computations on top of that data. And we've kind of come back to that now, and that's a data lake where you can do the same thing. It's a slightly different story to now where we can land every scrap and bit of data that an organization touches into a centralized warehouse. And then we can democratize access to that data. Anybody can use it to make decisions. Anybody can build products on top of it. And the realization is now, actually, this isn't a place where we're just dropping data that we're going to then pick up and use later. We've not created a warehouse where we're taking data that's good and putting it in and then getting it back out and retrieving it. No, 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 no. We've created this very complicated factory of manipulations, transformations, joins, integration. Essentially, we're data manufacturers in a way. We're joining a bunch of data sets together we're removing data, we're cleaning it, just like you would do in a factory. There's all these different ingredients, there's an assembly line, and in the end, you get some sort of output. If you think about any data scientist's workflow, there's this well-assumed fact that 80% of your time is spent preparing the data. Yeah, and sometimes it could be like 99%. Absolutely. It is because you're building this kind of massive foundation and artifact of transformations of the data to get it into the exact shape you need to answer the specific question or build the specific model. And what organizations are doing is they're realizing that and they're increasingly standardizing and automating through tools like DBT, which is a great way to be able to enable people to do this in a more scalable fashion, still using SQL, but not everything kind of duct tape and glued together. Organizations are investing in doing that at scale and you're creating this highly automated factory with tons of different use cases And what organizations have realized is they've gotten into that position and then things break all of the time. The data collection changes, what data is collected changes, some third party you're dependent upon changes the data. These transformations need to change. One data scientist needs the data presented in a slightly different way. And so uh, transformation 10 steps upstream is changed to facilitate that. There isn't the realization that that transformation also affects 30 other things happening in the organization and can have really material consequences for those things. And so there's all of this potential risk for change and uncertainty in the data, and yet we don't have good ways to test any of this. It's like we're operating a massive, high availability web service, and we don't unit test the code that we deploy, and we don't have good monitoring for whether or not people are getting the responses they need out of our web service. That would be ludicrous. Who would do that aside from companies 10 or 15 years ago when they didn't have the tools and technologies to solve the problem? One of the tweets I liked, you said that basically half of machine learning is knowing when to stop. And essentially, most machine learning models are not creating a lot of value. How do you identify when or if it's time to stop working on the model? 
that was a big part of my job at Instacart was on one side, figuring out for the 10,000 different problems that Instacart faced that we had data about, which ones were possible to invest in and kind of reasonable to try using machine learning on. And out of those 10,000 problems for the thousand that we tackled, which ones do you cut bait on and stop? Because you're not making material progress. And it's quite difficult to know in advance what's going to work and what isn't going to work. A lot of that is because it's not just a question of can you predict something? Can you make a good recommendation for something? You can build algorithms that you can test historically and say, yes, I can predict when a customer is going to come back to Instacart, or I can predict whether or not they're going to say this is a good replacement for an item. The question is, when I take that model and I put it into production, does it have a material positive effect on the system that it's now interacting with? This goes back to the radiology discussion we were having earlier. Take the deep learning model and just replace it for the human making the decision. That's a very difficult comparison. It's because you're now operating in a real world with feedback loops with constraints and with other things that you couldn't possibly have measured using historically collected data. So to answer your question, how do you know you need to stop? I think that instrumentation of the model is incredibly important. And there's been a lot of innovation in that, even since I left Instacart, of making it easier to instrument models. And it's a combination of backtesting the models on historically collected training data, but also collecting real-time data about the model's performance and doing robust A-B tests of the model in production. And the question becomes, you've got a model, it's in production, you know that it's improved over a baseline, very simplistic approach by 10 or 15%. You've done an A-B test to regress it. I take my complex model and I compare it to a simple rule of thumb. It's 10% better. So I know I've made the system better. I also put it into production against what was previously a human system or some other system. And the A-B test said we actually made things better for the customer by 3%. Now you can collect all of the hypotheses of, well, how could I make it materially better? And the question is, as you test those hypotheses, you want to collect how strong was my prior belief in this and kind of the physics and intuition we have about the system. How much did I expect this was going to continue to improve things versus how much did it actually improve? You oftentimes have to take four or five steps there before you realize my intuition or our collective intuition for what's going to improve this is not paying off. And until we have fundamentally new ideas or fundamentally new data to bring to the problem, we need to stop because it's not getting materially better. Got it. Okay. That makes sense to me. Basically, data sets become more powerful as they can be joined with other data sets. And how do you think about like how we can join more of these data sets together? Do we need more join keys? How do you think we can like get these data sets more combined with one another so that we can ask more questions of the data? This may not be the direction that you're interested in in going, Warren, but the direction here I'm most excited. I'll go anywhere you want. Here I'm most excited about are embeddings. An embedding is a property inside of a deep learning model where you're taking an entity. It could be typically what a join key is what I would refer to as an entity. So for example, it could be an IP address. It could be a location at a point in time. It could be a ICD-9 code. If you train a deep learning model to do something at scale with massive amounts of that data, oftentimes those entities get embedded. And what that means is you put each entity into this very big dimensional space, could be 100 dimensional space, and they get organized in that space in such a way that the model can use those 100 continuous features about each entity to do very rich, complex things. Sharing those features, those embeddings, 
is incredibly powerful because, for example, if I was back at Instacart and I wanted to predict how long was it going to take a given shopper to drive from location A to location B at a given time in the next three hours within San Francisco. I could use my own data from Instacart to try to make that prediction. I would only have so much density of data around all of that location information. Well, now you can think about what Google has. Everybody's using Google Maps and everybody is getting estimates from Google about drive times. Well, I could try to call Google and get an API response back for how long is it going to actually take to drive between these two places. But the average Google drive time is very different from the Instacart shopper's drive time and the implications of what the shopper is doing. They're driving for a very different purpose than the average Google driver is. They've got groceries that they need to handle in that process. They might be taking a different routing or other situations. If instead Google could take the embeddings about the locations and time that they use to make those predictions and give those to me, I would have suddenly this very rich feature space that had knowledge of all of the data that Google had in order for them to make their model, had that fundamental knowledge encoded in it, and I could use that to train my own models. So I think there's a ton of identifying common join keys is, I think, very important. Without that, you can't use these embeddings. I actually think rather than sharing raw data, which doesn't come with the scale of the learnings that you get from having all of it, it's very hard Essentially, you can make decentralized queries across lots of data sets if you had some sort of similar model of embeddings. And it's a fine-tuning question is kind of the implicit problem here. When I'm in a situation like Instacart, I often have very, very valuable outcome data. Data about, for example, did the customer think that this delivery was good or not? What rating did they give? It's incredibly valuable. And nobody else is going to have that data. But it is fundamentally limited. I'm only ever going to collect that on some fraction of orders and only for the orders that Instacart does. These embeddings take an entity and embed it in a useful space for solving some other problem. I can pick that up and airlift it and drop it onto my entities and now use that data to bootstrap a prediction that's going to have this incredibly rich feature space right off of the bat. And I'll be able to fine tune that entity space, just kind of reshape the entity space to be able to solve my problem. And I'll be so much better at that than if I had to kind of relearn all of that from scratch using my fundamentally limited data set. You've written a lot about how to build data science teams. What do you think is a big mistake that companies or leaders make when they're building out that data science function? Maybe they're going from zero to one person. Maybe they're going from 10 people to 100 people. What mistakes do people make? I mean, I think the biggest mistake is the easiest thing to do when you're adding your first data scientist, even first handful of data scientists, is to centralize them. Centralize it like within a data science org. And so, and then all the other orgs are their clients or something like that. That's right. So you think you should instead have a data scientist within the marketing team and a data scientist within the HR team or something? Absolutely. And ultimately at Instacart, it became incredibly powerful to have data scientists directly embedded into the product team. So the team working on the Shopper app would have machine learning engineers and data scientists that sat with that team and reported to the same team lead. Now, you can't do that in the beginning. You can't take one data scientist and have them fit into each one. And so there's, in the beginning, it makes sense to centralize them. Far too many organizations stay centralized for too long. Benefits of centralization are it's easier to recruit because you've got a data science leader who is recruiting these people and they're going to report into. And so it's easier to set up a recruiting engine where you're bringing them in. 
but it's much harder to create value, especially as the interesting scales. At Safecraft, we sell mostly to data scientists. They buy our data and they use it for their models and stuff like that. And I would say the vast majority of companies that we sell to, there is a central data science team. There's either a VP or an SVP, or maybe even an EVP if it's super important of data science. And then every other org in the company is their client. There's an HR org, how much should we pay our employees or something? There might be some other org about real estate. There might be another org around pricing. It might be another order about how much we should buy our meat patties for or something. But you think that's ultimately the wrong way to do it these data scientists should be more dispersed within each org. Yeah. And the the reason is cycle times. And so what I mean by cycle time is how long does it take from having data about a problem, hypothesizing a model, creating that, doing the R&D for the model, putting the model into production, observing the implications of that model, making decisions about what data to collect differently in the future, and then iterating again. It's interesting. It's three to six months. In B2B software companies, there's this kind of like relatively new skill set, which is essentially like an ops operations type skill set, where they're somewhat technical folks using different tools and they're bringing in a bunch of data. They're making things flow better. There are some B2B software companies where ops is centralized, but in most cases, it's like what you said, it's more decentralized. There's a sales ops person who reports into sales. There's a marketing ops person. There might even be an HR ops person somewhere in the company. There may be a finance ops person, but then it is a little bit harder for that person to career grow because if you're a sales ops person, your manager is like maybe the head of sales or something, and they may not know about sales ops per se. When I was at Instacart, the way I saw my role was to be an offset for all of the inherent disadvantages of embedding data scientists and machine learning engineers. So there was still like some dotted line thing going on? or My primary job was to offset that, give them career opportunities, help them develop best practices, bring them together in a community, coach them in different ways. So all of those skill sets that you do lose when you embed them, they have to be added back in. And it's a question of, what do you want to be more difficult and what do you want to work harder at? Do you want to work harder at and make it more difficult to be able to recruit and grow these teams and figure out how to manage those people problems or do you want to make it more difficult to get things done? In reality, I think it's a false dichotomy because if you make it difficult to get things done, people will not be happy. People will not stay and they will not grow. <laughs> you won't be able to continue to invest in data science because you won't be productive enough. And so ultimately reducing that cycle time is everything. When you think about going back to your days at Instacart, Instacart has a ton of proprietary data. It has pricing data. It has data about which products move. It has a whole bunch of other kind of like really, really interesting data. And obviously uses that data internally to make its own product and its own customer experience much, much better. But you can imagine a scenario where the data itself is a product and Instacart could sell that data itself as a product. Do you think more companies should be looking at those types of things where, or do you think they should be more just doing everything possible to use that data to make their own core product better? In the Instacart case, the way that that data was used externally was actually bi-directional flow with the retail partners and with the CPG partners. And so with the retail partners, we would get detailed information about their expectation of what was in stock at each store location at any given point in time. 
And we would use that to have an informed estimate of what we should offer to customers and whether or not we should fulfill an order from a given store location. Then we would actually send shoppers there to go collect the items and they would oftentimes not find it despite the fact that the retailer thinks it's there. We would end up turning that data back and providing it back to the retailer, telling them, hey, your data- Hey, you're out of stock. You should order this thing or whatever. Because of all sorts of leakage and theft and accounting mistakes. And some of these locations- they have a person in the back who's like checking off on a piece of paper, pallet of X arrived, and that's their level of sophistication. And so in those cases, they were actually getting a tremendous amount of value from Instacart, but it wasn't something that would be sold. It was a relationship. Kind of a data co-op or something like yeah. that. Instacart was, and increasingly is becoming a technology partner and provider to retailers and to CPGs. And so there's just a very strong business relationship there. There's the question of Instacart could take data and package it and sell it to entities that aren't partners. And I think it's very fraught to do that. At Instacart, I'll give you a, a concrete example. I did a Kaggle competition. And as a part of that Kaggle competition, released a bunch of data about what consumers were buying. And so this was actual shopping cart purchase data and no identifying information at all about whoever was ordering it. But you could see the specific products included in baskets, and you could see some kind of time dependency of user bought X here and then went on and bought Y there. That was a nightmare to put together. It was incredibly difficult. The amount of information I had to strip out and kind of confidence I had to give everyone that there was no way any of that information could be used to... And why was it a nightmare? Like, that seems like a great thing that you were able to release it. Why was it, was it so hard to release for sure? But it was very, very difficult. Was you worried about like a legal problem or was it difficult? Like, was it technically difficult? To do? Both. There's legal, there's reputational risk, and then there's the technical implications of trying to satisfy those to a certain standard. And the root of the issue is that Instacart, when I was there, was a $7 billion business. The advantages of being able to, if you imagine trying to sell data, the economic opportunity of selling data was going to be dwarfed by that. Yet the risks of doing it and screwing up could materially destroy value. Companies have been materially affected by screwing up. So there's just this very high risk. Right, it's an asymmetric risk that maybe is not worth taking for a lot of companies. And technically to implement it is quite difficult because you have to think about it's classic security. You're not just trying to make it okay. You have to put your mind in, I'm an adversary who wants to take advantage of this data. I want to the Wall Street Journal article that says, I found my purchases in Instacart's data, and here's what I learned about myself. Do we need more companies to start releasing it to get some sort of inoculation there? Because this would be really good for society if Instacart was able to give out more data to other innovators who can then innovate on it and come out with it. And I'm not just talking about Instacart, but there's thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of companies that have really great proprietary data that innovators could use. And if we got more of that data out there in a completely privacy safe way, and I'm sure there are ways to do it, I'm sure in the end, the data you were able to get there, there's no way to identify somebody. If we got more of that data out there, it would be really good for society. Imagine taking that Instacart data and then merging it with the medical data. Now we have like even better longitudinal studies about what the types of things that people order and their eventual outcomes and stuff like that. Like this could be incredible for our society. Yeah, I think the challenge is that the more valuable the data is, the greater the privacy risk. And so just there, you said merging Instacart data with medical data, well, that requires a common primary key. A common join key. But as you said, there are probably ways to do this in a decentralized way. 
where like Instacart can't see the underlying data of the medical data, the medical, whatever medical data can't see the underlying Instacart data. There's ways of joining this data and potentially ways of querying and ask questions across many, many, many different databases without ever seeing the underlying data. No, 100%. I do think there's a tremendous amount of value opportunity there, and we should do things to encourage it. I do wonder if fundamentally new systems of how data is collected, how privacy is managed, how incentives are aligned are needed. I think about what's happening in Web3 and crypto and the ability to decentralize these systems so that there isn't a centralized authority and such that everything is verifiable and you can exactly audit what's happening. I think in a situation like that, I get more comfortable with this becoming more transformative because it is totally transparent and auditable. I think trying to kind of make it happen at mass scale on some of the existing systems, incentives, regulations is very, very difficult. Well, you need someone to kind of make it, to will it. I'm incredibly worried that another society, not the one that we live in, is going to really push this. Their citizens are going to benefit. There's going to be things from national security that they're going to be able to do better than we can. And we're going to be at a long-term disadvantage from another society. If you're looking at China as an example, and yes, they can collect much more data than we can, but they do that at the expense of freedom and privacy. And I think that the implications of what that means for long-term innovation. That's the shortcut. The shortcut is don't worry about people's privacy, just hoover in all the data that goes in there. I think we could have our cake and eat it too. I think we could completely 100% protect everyone's privacy and have all the access to the data. I don't think it's an or situation. There's an and join that we can go do this. And I think we did ourselves a disservice in the ad tech ecosystem by early on collecting a lot of data and using it in context where it wasn't collected for purposes that weren't transparent to users. And we created a lot of backlash and political ill will that we now have to overcome in domains where it actually really matters, like in healthcare. I think we have a lot of big special interests that don't want an improved world where an improved world really hurts them, like the hospital systems, et cetera. It's just not good for them to have an improved world. And they'll do everything possible to come up with like the privacy boogeyman, even though we can solve that problem to make it that we can't actually make progress. It's actually in most of the big companies, it's not in their interest to solve these problems. And so we need to somehow kind of force it on them. And regardless of whatever people think about China, they can force it because they know it's going to be ultimately, now they're doing it at the expense of privacy. I think we can force it and have privacy. I think you're right. I think probably the single biggest thing holding us back is our regulatory models and the fact that regulations are added and never removed, never questioned. And so they're historically out-of-date regulations that are- Like a HIPAA thing or something like that. Or I mean, well-intentioned, definitely important in a lot of ways needs to be fundamentally rethought as technology changes and our use cases expand. I can give you an example, Oren, of using third-party data in the healthcare system from earlier in my career that might be interesting to talk about. Yeah, let's do it. In the context of medical malpractice. So I spent the first five years of my career building models to predict outcomes for insurance companies. And my most successful application was in medical malpractice. The way the medical malpractice system works in most cases is you have a very simplistic pricing structure of I'm going to look at what specialty the physician is in, OBGYN versus family practice. Maybe geography or something. And geography. And geography is a proxy for how litigious is the environment they're practicing in. What are the caps on damages that can be implied? That's what drives pricing for medical malpractice. Then you have humans that make underwriting decisions, which basically say, 
I'll underwrite this position or I won't, or I'm going to have some limited way of kind of tacking on something to increase the price for this position. The project was take a geography and collect information about all of the physicians practicing in that geography, where we could actually get the medical malpractice claims data. And so we could see for every physician practicing in this geography, how often they were sued. And we could get really interesting third-party data about the physicians. And it turned out to be, there were obvious things like the specialty that matter, what specific county they were practicing in. But then you could get their medical education, which was a huge hypothesis that that was going to really matter. Turned out it didn't. It wasn't as big of a predictor as people thought. And then you could get really interesting. You could get their credit scores. That turned out to be a huge predictor of medical malpractice risk. If someone had a really poor credit score as a physician, they were much more likely to be sued and much more likely to have higher damage claims against them. But then the really killer application was to get information from the hospital systems or from the pharmaceutical benefit managers about how many inpatient visits the physicians were doing, what kinds of procedures were happening in those inpatient visits, how many prescriptions they were prescribing, what types of prescriptions they were prescribing. And that data was released in certain geographies, no patient information whatsoever, but it could be linked to the practicing physician. And it gave you this base rate understanding of, wait a second, there are OBGYNs that are delivering three babies a day and they're paying the same for medical malpractice. You would just think like the number of procedures you do to go up, just like in car insurance, the more miles you drive, the more likely you are to get in a car accident. Right. Now there's a marginal implication of this, which is that the marginal delivery you do, if you haven't done a certain number of deliveries per year. If you only do one per year, that's you might mess I don't it up. That one, but I'm happy to underwrite that physician <laughs> medical malpractice risk because the risk is actually quite a bit lower. And so when you do something like that, the implications for the system are pretty pronounced because you go from a world where every physician that's an OBGYN is paying the exact same very high premium. Because yeah, also there are part-time OBGYNs sure. and they're paying the same for medical malpractice as a full-time person. There are 10% of those physicians who you can predict will account for 90% of all economic costs. And if you can identify those and make them pay, then the incentives of the whole system shift. Now, all of a sudden, the physician who has a poor credit score and is doing three deliveries per day using poorly trained assistants is going to be incentivized to stop doing that because they get paid per delivery, but their costs scale in a fixed way. I mean, I assume that as they get more claims, their specific costs do go up. They do. If I get in a car accident, my car insurance does go up. That's exactly right. But how often do you get in a car accident? Well, so far, basically never. Yeah. How yeah. many years have you driven for? Quite a few, unfortunately. So I'm pretty old. Have these rare outcomes, which a lawsuit like this is, physicians can carry a very high risk for it, but not pay anything. And then they suddenly get dinged for it or vice versa. Someone can actually carry a very low risk, but get unlucky and then unable to practice. When Good point. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests, what is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? So I think I have to go back in my career and think about situations where I got advice that was bad. And my favorite one was I was doing this insurance predictive modeling. I was about four or five years into it. Someone I really respected sat me down and said, Jeremy, your career is going to be limited if you don't become a better expert in insurance. You need to really double down and understand the nuances of the insurance industry. And I heard that and I thought, I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's just not for me. I don't want to do that. As much as I respected this person, it was actually the advice that made me realize that I needed to leave 
I needed to do something different. And Interesting. So I see a lot of folks early in their career get kind of stuck in this, I need to become a domain expert in a specific vertical in order to be really functionally effective. And I think there is certainly an element of expertise and familiarity you have to build. But I actually strongly encourage folks that are creative and want to be innovative to move verticals and build a kind of skill set to be able to generalize problem solving from one domain to another. There's a lot to be said for thinking about things from first principles, from a fresh perspective that you get and you kind of experience that when you're forced to shift that you won't experience when you're kind of kept in the way. Okay, cool. I love it. That's awesome. All right, Jeremy Stanley, thank you for being on World of Jazz. I follow you on Twitter. You're Jeremy Stan on Twitter. Is that the best place for people to follow you and learn more about you? Yeah, absolutely. That's the best place to follow me for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you for joining us on World of Jazz. Yeah, thank you for having me, Warren. This was fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.